I'm turning this evening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23 and verse 33. Luke 23, verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And our subject is the greatest event in world history. It is, of course, the crucifixion of Christ, the cross of Christ. Perhaps you don't think so. How can that be the greatest event in all history, you wonder? Surely this is a massive overstatement, but we will only say we don't think so if we don't understand the cross of Christ and what it is and what happened and what God has done and its profound aspects and its accomplishments, then we see it and we grasp it. If we're unaware of the cross of Christ, why the cross of Christ? What did it accomplish? then really we won't understand the purpose of life and we won't have any hold on our eternal destiny. The cross of Christ is unquestionably the greatest and the most significant event, the most powerful achievement in all history. And dear friends, we desperately need to appreciate that and to know that. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary. How interesting that in our King James Version we read this word Calvary. It isn't actually what is in the original. The original Greek is simply the word which indicates skull or cranium, the skull. When they had were come to the place of the skull, a rocky hill that vaguely resembles a skull. So why do our King James translators choose the word Calvary? Well, it's because it was the word, or it's derived from the word, that was in the Latin Vulgate. What are they doing borrowing their word? Well, it was so well known In Jacobean times, the word was so well known, the translators decided, evidently, we won't touch it. We'll leave it there. So you have here the Latin translation or derivative of it, Calvary, the only place that occurs in the Bible. The modern translations all tend to go for the place of the skull, which is literally correct. It is, of course, in Aramaic, the hill originally named Golgotha, and you know that name also. But Calvary is the name here, and it's a word that everyone understands, even though it isn't literally the correct translation. We all know exactly where is meant and what is meant. 
And it's a beautiful word to us when they were come to the place that is called Calvary, the place of the skull. There they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Well, you know about Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, the one expected for centuries, the only person in the history of the world who has ever been prophesied for centuries before his coming, and I mean accurately, comprehensively, specifically, one of the great miracles of the Bible and the Christian faith is the extent to which Christ Jesus the Lord was prophesied that God himself would enter into the world. If people only knew these things, they would be amazed, astounded. What? They would say, the only person ever to have been prophesied, and unmistakably so, and not only for centuries, but for three millennia. Yes, so obvious and so true is the incarnation of Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, into the world that he created, subject to prophecy. But here he comes on earth and he lives. What does he do in the three years or so before his crucifixion, the three years of his ministry, that is, as an adult on earth? Well, he engages in thousands of compassionate healings, remarkable healings, in full view, public view, most of them. Done at a word or a touch, instantaneous healings. Healings which involved somehow the immediate reconstitution of withered bodily parts. And of course the giving of life to the dead. The restoration of sight to the blind. So many miracles. There has never been a miracle worker anything like Jesus Christ the Lord. That's another great miracle of the Christian faith, the numerous compassionate healings of Christ. They proved that he was divine and they showed the very heart of God and the compassion of Almighty God. They also illustrated the way in which he would work in lives spiritually, bringing us to salvation and spiritual life. Of course, in his life on earth, he also instructed his disciples and left truth for the following centuries. Christ lived a perfect life under great provocation and constant temptation by the enemy of souls. He lived a life of perfect obedience in his time of humiliation on earth to earn heaven for all his people. And then, at the end of his life, in seeming weakness 
as though he could not avoid it, but he could avoid it. He allowed himself to be taken, arrested, cruelly ill-treated, and eventually crucified on a cross. And there, according to scripture, something happened so profound, he bore away all the punishment due to the sin of all the people who would ever be forgiven during the history of the world, and he suffered that everlasting punishment compressed into the space of a few hours. And he suffered things we cannot contemplate in his soul. Separation from his father, he tasted even that, our eternal separation and banishment. He took it all in his astonishing love so that he could purchase the right to forgive us. You know that God is so holy and God is so just, he cannot let us off our sin. In order for God to be just and kind and forgiving, he must come himself, which he did in the person of Christ, and suffer the punishment of sin himself. That is the message of Christ and the message of the gospel. So it was essential that he should be crucified. He had a series of trials or hearings. Alongside the physical cruelties, he had three hearings from the Jews. Annas, a former high priest and relation of the present high priest, he had a hearing before him. Caiaphas, the serving high priest, he was tried before him. Then he was bundled from one to the other. And then at daybreak, he was put before the entire Sanhedrin council of the 70 ruling Jews. What were they doing? Looking for trouble. They had paid dearly to find witnesses people who would testify against Christ, accusing him of all kinds of blasphemies and horrors, and they couldn't find any witnesses. And eventually, they had to make up the charges against him and charge him with various offenses and blasphemy. That was the supreme one. And he, who had, was their creator, their maker, the maker of all worlds, the entire cosmos, went through this humiliation on his way to the cross of Calvary. And then there were the three Roman hearings. Pontius Pilate heard him, wouldn't find him guilty, sent him to Herod. He sent him back a second hearing from Pontius Pilate. He scourges him, the terrible whippings of the time that left the flesh open and the wounds running with blood. But he wouldn't find him guilty. He appealed to the Jewish leaders to release him, but they screamed against him and connived. 
Back he went to Pilate, and Pilate in the end sent him, as it were, to the crowd. And the crowd whipped up to a frenzy by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees screamed for his death. And Pilate delivered him over to their will. The Jewish leaders, you see, couldn't impose a death sentence. They were under Roman occupation. Only the Romans would do that. And Pilate wouldn't until he was finally driven to it. And so you come to the record here. Verse 33, And when they were come to the place, which is called the place of a skull, Calvary in our Bibles, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one either side. See the Lord identifying with criminals. You see him crucified as though he were a criminal. Despite his works of compassion, despite his wonderful teaching, despite his unblemished character, despite the fact he fitted all the prophecies of the Old Testament as being their genuine and true Messiah, sent from God, doing the very things they should expect. They plotted against him, they hated him, and finally their opportunity comes when he allows himself to be arrested by them and taken. He's scourged not once, but twice by the Roman authority, and probably once by the Jewish authorities also. That's debatable, but very likely three times, certainly twice. The condition Christ Jesus must have been in when they led him to the cross, already bleeding, already wounded. But why? Why did they so hate him? Why did the leading clergy of the day detest him and were opposed to him? Well, because, first of all, they had a hatred of living faith. Oh, dear friends, you must understand this. They hated living faith. They didn't mind, dare we call it, dead religion, dead faith. That's what they engaged in. Endless ceremonies, endless rites and ceremonies, parading about in their garments and their robes, going through the motions, reading the scriptures without understanding them, living double lives. Their religion wasn't alive. They didn't have a conscious, felt union with God. They didn't know him and prove him. They didn't have answers to their prayers. They didn't love him and interact with him. It wasn't a living faith, a living religion. For some it was. For some of those Jews, we read about them in both Testaments. They had real faith, but the majority, they were just kind of religious Jewish nationalists and nominal 
worshippers. They didn't have living faith. Christ came preaching living faith. He preached to the people that if they repented of their sin and believed in the mercy of God and sought him for a living salvation, he would bring their souls to life and they would know him. They would be, as we say, converted and they'd walk with him and they'd have heaven and life and understanding and joy and peace. But they didn't want that. They hated that. You're telling us we're not authentic, they would say. You're telling us we're not authentic children of Abraham. And they detested him for proclaiming real relationship with God, living faith. This is what true Christianity is about. You go back to the time of the Reformation. You're back to Martin Luther in Germany. Suddenly he discovers true living faith. Justification by faith. Trusting in the death of Christ and what he's done to purchase salvation for us. Seeking him, finding him, coming to know him, walking with him. And the Catholic clergy of those days, right up to the Pope, hated him for it. It's all works to them, and pomp and show. Living faith, knowing the Lord. You come to this country, the Reformation here, the martyrs originally, they died for this. Living faith. You go forward sometime to say the... uh, a great Awakening at the beginning of the 1700s, 1739, a great outbreak of religious revival was massive in this country that lasted for decades. George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, the great preachers of the hour. George Whitfield began to preach at the Kennington Common a matter of a few hundred yards from here, at Gallows Corner as it used to be, right by the uh, Oval there. And he preached to 40,000, 50,000 people who would come from nowhere and gather, tears running down their faces as they would find Christ and true faith. And what was the watchword of the Great Awakening? The new birth. The people of England all went to church. The law told them to. They all believed nominally in the Christian faith, but they weren't real Christians. They didn't have a a true living relationship with God, and that's what the awakening was all about, to be converted and to find him and to walk with him. And that's what Christ was proclaiming, and that's why they hated him, and they must get rid of him. And he said, you must repent. And their pride wouldn't receive that. He's telling us we've got to go on our knees before God and say we're sinners and grovel. Their pride was too great for that. And they hated him for it, for his preaching, for who he was, for what he did. And they planned to kill him. But two things were going on. The cross came about because of their hatred. 
but it came about because God intended it, because Christ came for that purpose. All through his three years' ministry, he was working to the day when he would be arrested and beaten and humiliated and crucified. It was the plan of God. The Apostle Peter, in the very first sermon of the Christian church proper on the day of Pentecost, he said words which uh, describe it perfectly. He said to the Jews, Him, Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. You see, he gets both sides. This all came about by the determinants, determining, if you like, foreknowledge and counsel of God. He allowed it to happen. He intended it to happen. But you were to blame because you, by your wicked hands, hated him and took him and crucified and killed him. Both sides of the equation are in the words of the Apostle Peter preached to the great crowds on the day of Pentecost. That's the cross of Christ. They did it, but God intended it. God superintended it. God planned it. Why? Why the death of the incarnate Son of God? Well, I've explained it. Because God himself must die for sinners in amazing love and take our punishment and purchase our salvation. And you know, when people despise the Christian message and when people shun the word of God and the Christian faith, they are shunning the kindest thing that ever happened or was conceived, that God should make a way of salvation for his enemies, for his opponents, for those who have sinned against him all their lives and don't even want him or seek him. There is nothing to be compared with the gospel of Christ. Let's look at one or two of these verses. Verse 34 of the passage, Then said Jesus when he was hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Some people say he only had in mind the Roman soldiers who were carrying out the execution. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't have in mind the Jewish leaders. He didn't have in mind the crowds that screamed for his death. Only the innocents, the soldiers who had to carry out the deed. But that isn't true, you know. The astonishing thing of the love of God is that Christ here makes intercession even for his enemies. 
he made intercession possibly for you. Possibly you were in his heart and in his mind. He was God as well as man, alongside millions of others. Father, forgive them. The intercessory cry of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross of Calvary. There is no kinder scheme in the universe. There is no more merciful scheme than this, that God would die for his enemies and slanderers. There is no more gracious scheme. You know about free offers? Is there such a thing as a free offer? What's behind it? What's the catch? There is one free offer. Christ's suffering and dying on Calvary. It's the most gracious scheme. It brings free salvation to those who deserve nothing. It's the most powerful scheme in the universe. The most obdurate and extreme sinners can be saved because Christ died on Calvary. They can be transformed and given new lives. They can live forever in eternal glory. It's the most powerful scheme. It's the most enduring scheme. There is nothing to be compared with the cross of Christ and all that Christ has done and all that he has accomplished. Oh, dear friends, I wish we had time to go through aspects of Calvary. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't come for himself. He didn't come to get something for himself. He came for us. He came for the people who he would save. He didn't come because he had to. He wasn't obliged to come. It wasn't essential that we should be saved. It wasn't necessary that doomed, condemned sinners should be rescued and at such horrendous cost. He came voluntarily and freely out of love. You don't know it if you've never been converted and you're going to be converted. You don't know this, but never in this world will be, you'll be so loved as you are loved by Christ who came from heaven to suffer and die for all who would be saved. His love is without parallel. Oh, dear friends, there's so much we could say. Christ came not to fail. He couldn't fail in anything he did because he was God. If God failed, he'd cease to be God. Infallibility is one of the attributes of God. That's what makes him God. He is holy, eternal, perfect, all-knowing, 
all-powerful, infallible, unchanging. Christ didn't come to fail. When he set foot in this world, no matter what it cost, he would succeed. He would bear away all the punishment due to those who would be forgiven. He would be entirely successful in what he accomplished. Why, dear friends? Why Calvary? It is the mercy and it is the love of God. I've just a few minutes to tell you one or two things and I read from verse 35. The people stood beholding and the rulers also with them derided him. He saved others, they shouted. Let him save himself if he be Christ, the chosen of God. How ignorant those clergy were. Didn't they know their Bibles, their Old Testament scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures said clearly that Messiah, when he came, would die. And here are the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. They'd so twisted the scripture. They're saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God, if he'd saved himself, it would have proved he wasn't Christ, the chosen of God. Because the prophecies said he would give himself and he would die. It's in Psalm 16. I won't go into detail. King David is meditating on Christ, the coming Messiah. And suddenly he realizes and he sees as God gives him this truth that Christ will never rot in the grave but he will rise from the dead. And he says so in Psalm 16. Psalm 22, a long psalm which goes into the sufferings of Christ and his death and the awful things he would suffer and then mentions his resurrection and says, for what he accomplishes, generations will worship him and love him and adore him. The death, resurrection and success of Christ is all there in the psalm. Psalm 24, whoever will win salvation for us and earn the favor of God for us and go into heaven and deserve it and bring it down to us. Why, says Psalm 24, Christ the Lord will do these things and he'll rise from the dead and ascend into heaven victorious. It's all in the Old Testament that Messiah will die. Isaiah chapter 53, the prophecy of how Christ will die on Calvary. At the end of the chapter, how he'll be raised from the dead and live again with his people. Plus all the passages in the Old Testament that talk about redemption that God's work will bring about a great redemption in which somebody will pay 
for the saving of sinners. It's all there that Messiah will pay and redeem us and pay a horrendous price. It's back in the earliest, first book in your Bible, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3. The great descendant will one day come to Adam and Eve, a distant descendant who will enter into conflict with the serpent, the enemy of souls, and crush his head and his own heel will be crushed. He will suffer in the process. So the death of Messiah, and here they are saying, if he be the Christ, let him save himself. They don't understand. Do we understand, dear friends? Do you understand Calvary? It's massive accomplishments. So many things we could talk about, but not tonight. Here is mercy. Here is the love of God. Here is new life. Here is heaven. We believe in Christ as the only way of salvation. Through his suffering and death for sinners, we repent of our sin, we hand over our lives to him, and he makes us new, and he saves us. Oh, friends, that's all we have time for. Understand the cross of Christ. Marvel at it. Come to him and respond to what he has done. Let's pray. Oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all this night. Deliver us from ignorance of soul. Deliver us from trust in this present vain world. Oh Lord, show us eternal things. Draw us to Christ. Save men and women, even this night. Help us all, O oh Lord, for we depend upon thee and thy mighty power and thine everlasting kindness, and ask these things in the name of Christ, our Saviour. Amen.